Welcome to the Cultural Life of Money and Finance podcast. This is a podcast series based in the University of Leeds, where we're exploring money through the arts and humanities, asking new questions about finance, the global financial system, and financial behaviour in the 21st century. We're doing this by asking about how money is being and has been thought about in different contexts across historical, cultural, ethical, religious, social and material settings. We believe that how we think about money matters and that if we're going to have an informed debate about the future of money and finance, how it should play a part in human lives and societies, we need to understand as fully as possible the ways in which money can be understood. So in this podcast series, we're talking with researchers and practitioners to get their perspective on questions relating to the cultural life of money and finance and on how the arts and humanities can help shape debate on money in the years to come. In this episode, we're discussing a special collaboration between the Cultural Life of Money and Finance Project and Invisible Flock, an award-winning art studio based at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. This collaboration was supported by the Leeds Creative Labs scheme, run by the Cultural Institute in the University of Leeds and enabled us to explore some critical issues relating to our research on money and to the ways in which our collaboration can help us devise new research questions. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Catherine Baxendale, Executive Producer at Invisible Flock. Hi there, I'm Mark Davis. I'm an economic sociologist at the University of Leeds. I'm Rachel Muirs from the School of Philosophy, Religion and History of Science at the University of Leeds. My specialisms in Christian theology. I'm Matthew Traherne. I'm from the School of Languages, Cultures and Societies at the University of Leeds, where I work on Italian literature. So just to introduce Invisible Flock, we're an interactive art studio. We're based at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. We create highly sensory installations and environments that ask us to renegotiate our relationship to the natural world. Through our work, we aim to open up critically important ways of thinking about how we live, how we connect, how to share, to live better together in a global society. Our work predominantly explores the ecological crisis in all its forms, from ecosystem decline, biodiversity loss, climate change and psychoteric grief. We look to explore how art practices can offer new perspectives and understandings of climate issues and engage with those often excluded from these conversations. What really interests me about the cultural life of money and finance project that we've got going at Leeds is the opportunity to ask really important questions about money and finance, but from a host of perspectives and listening to voices that might often be at the margins of those conversations. We tend to think about money and finance either as the preserve of uh, an economics discipline within the academy um, that has a certain right to speak on those 
those issues or we tend to think of money and finance as a set of technical questions for professional banking institutions or investment institutions to speak to. And I think what's really exciting about the conversations that we've had with Invisible Flock and other members of the project so far is the opportunity to look at money and finance almost askance really, to take money and finance as a cultural object, as a social object, as an environmental object, and look at the way in which we can understand money and finance differently in the hope of finding alternative ways of organising money and finance, but also in seeking a kind of radical reinterpretation of how money circulates through everyday life. So my own work in particular as an economic sociologist is very much interested in the social relationships that exist around money and finance and how money is received by us and how we pass that money on, both in terms of the function and the purpose of that exchange, actually say something that's meaningful about social relationships as much as it does about a neutral kind of transaction as a, as a means of exchange. So I'm really looking forward to, to opening up some of those questions in this conversation today. So in the wider context of the project, some of the big questions we're interested in include how cultures have responded to and represented major turning points in the history of money and finance. This is part of the search for alternative ways of imagining the future, imagining alternative futures, is also to look at the, the history of um, the representation, thinking through of turning points in money and finance, and to use the arts and humanities to do that. We're interested in the different ethical questions that arise and the different ethical approaches to finance. So linking into the point that Mark's making about social relationships around money and finance, asking questions about the deeper questions of value, um, relationships, nature of human society, nature of the good human life, so on, that are raised in connection with finance. And we're interested in the materiality of money and the materiality of finance, both the very practical stuff about the actual material objects that are money and finance, but also how money and finance shape our material relationships, shape our ways of being in the world and in the environment. So what's really exciting about working in a creative lab with Invisible Flock, I think, is the way in which it gives new ways for us to think through some of our questions, ways that might not otherwise be possible if we were purely working in a sort of research-focused way. It's the opportunity to work with an organisation that has really done some deep thinking, both about some of the questions that we're interested in relating to ecology, the digital relationships between people, between people and the world. But they've done so in a way that actually thinks through how to reset some of those relationships, how to reveal new things about those relationships. So the dialogue for us with Invisible Flock is absolutely full of potential. So at Invisible Flock, we're interested in exploring ideas of slowing down, creating experiences that invite audiences to find a different angle in which to understand from one that is a, a few beats slower and that makes space and one that can potentially create opportunities for alternative understandings of time, perhaps considering deep time and also future time. So understandings of time and scale has felt like one of the most interesting areas of discussion that we've had during the lab together so far. In addition to building understandings of how money or more specifically debt has created such extensive levels of global imbalance. 
during Mark and Matty's previous podcast, Mark explains how the natural world is bearing the burden of an unsustainable growth margin, where moral responsibilities are not appropriately assumed. And these ideas are really tangible. And it's exploring the tangible and building ways of seeing and feeling that we're really interested in within our practice. It's been hugely relevant to look through lenses of the socioeconomic and financial structures that we perhaps explore more inherently within our work. Our work is responsive and research-led. We don't make work in a vacuum. It's built and understood through the systems that we're situated within. But one of the reasons it perhaps doesn't fit front and centre sometimes is that we look for routes that we can really impact. We want our work to be positive, to create a positive impact that holds the potential to create actual real world change. The scale of economic systems is so vast, capitalism is so ingrained and all-encompassing that it feels impossible to affect and to make tangible changes. But what these discussions have really opened up for me is that finance and economy is a complexity that we really must explore and understand better, and that in fact there's a place from which we can impact change. Challenging global financial systems could indeed be the only logical route available to creating any truly sustainable futures. During a collaboration with speculative writer, artist, curator and pleasure activist Amma Josephine Budge, she spoke of how art's role might be to prepare for divestment, to guide us towards letting go. And this really resonates. So I'm just going to give a few examples of some of our work. Um, and I'm going to start with Earth Tones, which is a body of work that represents our working methodologies quite well. It's a work that looks to find new ways of representing hidden elements of nature and our fragile relationship to it. The work always begins with a prolonged research phase where we develop deep relationships with a landscape or an environment, exploring it from multiple angles and collecting data sets that help us to build a narrative of the place we're exploring. This developed relationship with the landscape is essential for creating an understanding and a connection ourselves. We slow down to explore. We listen deeply using microphones that sit in trees and pick up sounds of water moving through the trunk. We place hydrophones into glaciers to record the almost bird-like sounds from within. The resulting form the work takes is always responsive to the environment that we're working within and often leads on to develop into new strands and areas of interest or concern. We work collaboratively on these projects with scientists, researchers and communities who are experts in the particular area or field we're exploring. This enables us to deepen our own understanding, but also leads to a potentially reciprocal relationship whereby we can bring our skills or equipment into use and create shared understandings. So we're currently building an exhibition for the Science Museum in Manchester that brings together two locations that we've explored as part of this project. So we're creating an interactive sensory environment using data collected from critical Amazonian and Indonesian ecosystems, presented within 10 sculptural tubes and communicating live bioelectrical activity from plants. So audiences are invited to explore the installation in order to affect it, entering an evolving and generative light and sound environment that functions like a living and breathing organism that reacts to their presence in real time. The work asks us to perceive time from a non-human perspective and consider the deep life cycles of ancient ecosystems and the desperate need to protect them. 
it feels important that the spaces we create for audiences is an empowered one with agency to be an active member in a conversation, a dialogue that you can interact with or participate within. This is crucial for creating a space that is meaningful and connected. This is perhaps one of the key reasons that we use technology within our work. As a medium, it's always been the best way for us to articulate new questions and generate alternative understandings of complex systems. We believe challenging, manipulating and playing with our digital realities allows us the agency to look at the world we live in from different perspectives. We use technology in works such as Earth Tones to stimulate connectivity, stimulate real, profound and potentially emotional connections so that as a participant, you have the potential to be meaningfully engaged. This is where the idea of relationality is a core aspect of our practice. So our work invites you to consider your relationship to others in the world around you. I'd just like to mention two other connected developing projects that look to build on understandings of scale. So our work has always been global in form, connecting audiences across continents, as well as bringing places that feel far away closer together in order to try and deepen our understandings and relationship to them. However, two new connecting works looks at this further and attempts to explore globally our primal and evolving relationship with the natural world and the effects of environmental degradation on our mental health. These projects are called Solastalgia and Forest. And both projects aim to bring together a global collective of people from different fields, worldviews and cultures to explore how our mental health is deeply linked to the natural world exploring the fractures through the landscape to us and how this is relational, looking to communities with deep connections to their land to explore this long lineage of interdependence and how nature and our psyches are intrinsically linked. So we're beginning by engaging communities in the question of what constitutes a forest? What is our relationship to them historically and now? How is our mental health entwined with ecosystem health? How do forests connect us globally and how might we conceptualise a future of greater reciprocity? These works really highlight our need to work ambitiously as artists, to embrace scale, exploring and pushing the limits of what is possible, who we can connect with and why that is so hugely important. We must extend out our discussions as far as possible and make work that is large in scale. So what I think is really interesting about what uh, Catherine's just been saying is the number of times in which you've referred to relationships and relationality. So the kind of economic sociology I've been researching at Leeds uh, takes the social relationships around money and finance very seriously. So at a, a kind of a very general abstract level, we can talk about how money mediates our relationships with each other uh, and also our engagement and experience of the natural world which is clearly a, a core concern of the work of invisible flock in uh, economic sociology specifically we talk about the relationality of money in terms of social relationships so whereas an orthodox economic interpretation of money would kind of stress its neutrality that money serves as a tool within a system from a kind of relational approach within economic sociology I'm far more interested in the social relationships that surround how that money flows in and out of society and, and the economy more broadly so for example the money I might receive as payment by dint of my salary is 
fundamentally different in terms of its social relationality to money I might receive from from a grandparent or a family member. So Viviana Zelitzer's work is really instructive in this regard. She argues that money can be divided further than economics would typically allow into categories of gift, entitlement and payment. And even at that level in that kind of tripartite system, money received as a gift is different to money that's received as a payment. And you can immediately see how there's a whole series of social relationships that surround how money might be gifted or paid or we're entitled to. It immediately suggests relationships to family, to organisations of employment, maybe to the state. And therefore, how our experience of money is managed is shaped very much by the relationships that surround it rather than just money as a means of kind of neutral exchange. And I think that in, in raising that question and, and, in, and in opening that conversation up, we can start to really explore some alternative understandings of money and finance that would seem to be relevant to the work that you've been doing. So one of the things we might want to pick up from that would be what difference the move to cashlessness or money as digital would make in our ability to understand it as differentiated. Because financialization, the relationship to money as, 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 as a dimension of digital space is instant, very fast. It's a very flat space in some ways, isn't it? It's just numbers. It's just numbers going up, numbers going down. Making certain relationships the ways in which money's mediating relationships harder to imagine. And one of the things I'm wondering about artwork that um, Catherine's describing in terms of the ways that it's trying to shift relationships to time and relationships to place, to reconnect to time and place, whether it's a pushing back against that effect of financialization. And then on top of that, it becomes really interesting that work with technology and work with the digital is such an important positive component of what Catherine's doing. So this is using technology as the way in which people can reform and remake relationships with spaces and different temporal modalities. Yes, and I, th I think just picking up on that idea of the, the digital and how that plays a role in um, the, I suppose the way in which money is experienced and forms part of our relationships. It also struck me in thinking about the work of Invisible Flock, the way in which digital act as an empowering force. Your aim is to restore agency and the digital world can often feel as though, and it's often presented as though, it's actually doing the exact opposite, either through the algorithms that it generates and that govern digital experience at times, but also in the way in which technology as a force within the banking sector and within the financial sector can often seem to be removing human agency from the system, removing that sort of relationality. So ideas about the way in which banking ethics might be changed by the fact that financial decisions on the part of institutions are being largely generated by computer rather than by individual human persons within the system also seem to feed into that. So I think that that idea of the digital as, as empowering, as restoring relationship seems to be really important in, in what you're doing in a visible flock. I think it, it, it is very important. And I think actually that point that you're making about banking ethics takes us back to the importance of understanding our social relationships and social responsibilities as individuals. Um, and that perhaps that, that kind of understanding those systems through those lenses can really allow us to kind of view economics from an alternative 
place. More crucially, not necessarily viewing natural resources as a kind of profitable structure that exists purely for keeping growth systems active. Surely there's a ceiling to that. Understanding our own kind of relationships within that is very difficult. Yeah, I really like that. And I think what you you kind of point to there, Catherine, as well, is the importance of a visible relationship to our money, that some of the trends that Rachel and, and Matthew were just speaking about there around cashlessness, the digital, the role of technology has been to an extent to remove the visibility of money from our everyday experiences. So in, in the increasing turn to a kind of cashless economy, and, and the more that our money is represented by a whole series of digital transactions, actions mediated by a card or a computer screen rather than a material relationship to our money that we can see depleting in size and weight from purses and and wallets uh, as we, we might once have done not only creates a sense of limitlessness to our spending, it's far harder for us to keep track of what it is we're spending on on a daily basis because of that change in the way we have a relationship to the materiality of our money. I also think from what you're saying, there's an interesting parallel there to what's happening with the natural world. We don't see the visible effects of our financial behaviours on the natural world. That's often kept very invisible to us through the way in which supply chains work and through the way in which the consequences of our consumer behaviour is often misrecognised by those affluent consumers, predominantly in the global north. But also that the at the same time, that sense of limitlessness is also transferred to that space. So the idea that somehow the planet isn't finite, that we can keep going on with our very carbon intensive economic arrangements. And, you know, there isn't a limit to that. Obviously, that's something that that those of us on the, the environmentally progressive side of that argument would say, well, there's a very clear finite limit to what the planet can bear. And you, know, you might argue that where we've reached that point already, and need to make some significant changes to the way in which we, we've organised society. But I think what's been fascinating in, in the conversations we've had is the way in which that sense of materiality and limit are being explored in the work that you're doing because I think they are fundamentally important to regaining a relationship with our money and with the planet that is necessary in order to open up alternative futures for both. I think we have to recognize that if we are going to create a more sustainable future then you know we are going to have to do different things with our money and one of the first steps in doing that is to try and reconnect with our money as a representation of social relationships, not not only at the social level, but also at the environmental level as well. And I think that's what's so fascinating about the work that you're doing. One thing I was thinking about earlier, Catherine, I wondered if you wanted to say any more about it was actually this question about inclusion. When you talked about your work earlier, talked about trying to involve people who aren't normally involved, who don't get a chance to be involved. You're talking about empowerment and agency and broadening conversations or engagement with these kinds of questions. And when we think about um, financialization and cashlessness and move to the digital, something that we have talked about somewhat is these very sharp lines of inclusion and exclusion that can end up being drawn, particularly, as Matthew's saying, where financial decisions are not being made by human beings. So, you know, your credit rating, your credit worthiness determines your access or not to um, certain kinds of spaces of involvement and, and agency. We often talk about how essential it is, I suppose, that actually we're not telling other people's stories. 
that we kind of look for, I suppose, whether you can say equitable models of exchange between people. So that actually, you know, if we were to go and to speak to a community and extract their stories and retell them for our own gain, that completely goes against what we would be intending to do. So actually, it's about finding systems for enabling storytelling. I think we've lost actually somewhere along the lines, the power of storytelling, and it can really be seen in, in so many sort of communities or situations, how important it is to pass on knowledge and information to one another but that 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 relationship of having a conversation is an art in itself I suppose which I think I find really fascinating that actually that ownership over your story and over that information that you're trying to share and trying to articulate needs to remain whenever it's reproduced and and retold because otherwise it could lose context and it could lose meaning I suppose so I think we're always really conscious of that within our work and within our practice and and we talk about how this word that is sometimes quite difficult this word participation but actually what we mean by that or kind of it is actually building a framework building a space that we bring people into to share and, and to kind of connect whether that's a community level or an audience level, but actually kind of following similar guidelines or similar patterns that you're actually kind of, it's an enabling space, I suppose. Opening up conversations is is really the only way of being able to learn from one another in a sense that is empowering. That's absolutely fascinating because it ties back to what Mark was saying earlier there were certain contexts in which money carries a history with it. And then there were ways of looking at money that could remember that, that could remember where it's come from, and that could remember where it's going. So the context, what you're talking about is the context, the social relationships that go with it, and the commitments and the values that have gone with it are held onto. And the ways of looking at money, ways of doing money, like ways of imagining money that enable it to cut off all memory of the past and all looking forward to the future. So to say, because we have, because we've made this relationship financial, it now can't be any of these other things. So it can't have um, this history of participation, of sharing. My commitment to you ends with me paying you. And it's absolutely fascinating the way you're talking about the relationships that you're forming as as artists with the communities you're working with, as the opposite of kind of extracting the resources, paying for them and going away. (laughs) Because this history of, you know, extracting the raw materials, paying for the raw materials, and then no further responsibility, no further commitment that's it how that history of well it's partly a colonial history right um plays into the ways we think about money and finance now there's a a whole set of fascinating connections to explore there between um, the ways in which artistic relationships and relationships with communities and the making of art are being imagined and practiced and the different ways in which in which monetary relationships are imagined and, and, and practiced i think what it does is it it means that it doesn't place boundaries around what can be explored and that we can actually embrace that complexity so that we're kind of actually finding all those thousands of millions of threads from uh, in individual ways and reaching multiple solutions perhaps that wouldn't otherwise be possible. I think all of that also really indicates some of the ways in which we might think about the arts engaging with money and finance where you know as, as you've talked about Catherine, the idea of storytelling seems to be a, you know, a route which has a lot of potential around money. 
especially the changing kind of experience of money that people have. But also thinking about the way in which financial relationships also take place globally and the way in which the kind of practice that Invisible Flock does might help us to imagine other ways of imagining and reconceptualizing those financial relationships, making them real and tangible. So the idea of the kind of connection that your work opens up between, you know, people in Southampton and people in rainforests. And the point is not taking one set of experiences and putting them in a new context or kind of making them open for appropriation by the new context, but it's about establishing that new relationship and making it tangible and precisely using the potential of technology to do that. And it just makes me think that this, you know, this might well form part of a kind of reimagination of money understanding the ways in which we might reveal those relationships. Because our, our financial interactions are on, happening on a global scale, it's just that we cannot see it. Everything that can be done is done to mask that by the financial system. You know, that seems to be one of the really interesting ways of thinking about money that your work might open up for us. So if I could just bring us back to Earth Tones as the, the project that Catherine was mentioning earlier, what I found really fascinating in that project, but also in the conversations we've had since, is, is the temporal dimension. So particularly this idea of slowness and the connection between money uh, and particularly finance and the idea that one of their functions, particularly in the way in which you know, money has become increasingly digitized, has been to kind of speed up our, our experience of life, the way in which we move through life, that there's a kind of unequal measure and acceleration and an intensification of the way in which we move through the different spheres of our, our life because of the way in which finance works. And the, the counterfactual that proves that point is just how slow life becomes when your access to money and finance is removed. So for example, the idea of spending some time in any of the major cities in the UK without access to money or with a very limited access to money and just how quickly your willingness but also your ability to move through that space is almost forced to slow down and um, the pace of life changes and it's only our our kind of access to the the ready availability of an apparently limitless digital version of money that's mediated through credit cards and different kind of mobile phone providers these days is what allows us to move through space with such speed. And I think that our sort of temporal relation to money and finance is also a really important question that emerges out of the Earth Tones project. So I just wonder if there's more to be explored in that regard as well. It's really interesting because I think time and the kind of relationship to place within time, whether it's time past or time future, it's very important, I think, to have that grounding looking at a place in time, because it kind of grounds you in, in a context, I think, and, and grounds you physically into kind of being able to look around you and kind of consider your presence, I suppose, within a cityscape. A number of our projects in the past has done exactly that, kind of asked you, invited you as an audience to remove yourself from some of those influences that you're constantly experiencing and just consider where you are and, and what, what the context you're, you're in just for, for a moment. And I think actually there's kind of huge value in that, just stepping outside and stepping 
to one side. And I suppose that's definitely what we're trying to kind of invite audiences to when, when they experience projects like Earth Tones. Often the installation space is potentially dark. It's perhaps I'm inviting you to remove yourself from those other sort of sensory overloads that we're so used to in a city environment and, and consider something that might be very small and very new to explore. You kind of have to take yourself away from that accelerated world that actually was very difficult to do because we're so used to that kind of constant level of interaction, I suppose. There's something really striking in the in the Earth Tones project as well about the record that's made of the journey to collect the data. So um, looking at these uh, wonderful collections that you have of photographs and reflections from the journey that brings the data. And it just it suddenly struck me that one way you don't want to think about the, the art process. Right. So here is here is the product. I'm going to present you with the product. And the main thing that you're going to get from it is you're going to look at it and you say, wow, that's great. And then afterwards, an afterthought, you might. Oh, well, so, OK, so how do you make that? Where did it come from? But the product doesn't demand that you do that. Right. It, it, it's all up front. You know what you see is what you get straight straight away. You're asking if I'm reading you right, asking us to engage with the history of what brought it here, which is a journey uh, through particular places, which took time, which involved a whole sets of kind of local micro relationships. You know, these people turned up in these place at this place and took these measurements. Then they moved on to this other place. And all of those sort of relationships and moments of presence are you know, being made in some way visible, but not in a way that means, oh, you know, you have them now served up for your consumption you can go back there and do exactly the same thing that's not that's not what's going on either it's a story with times and places with which you are being encouraged to engage in your particular time and place with a kind of heightened awareness of being in time and place and it strikes me as a real as a really interesting contrast to the instant availability of everything that's one of the myths if you like of a financialized world and the sort of thing that mark was talking about when he's, he's talking about you know you move through the city slowly when you're not plugged into the money system if you are plugged into the money system then you know you could be anywhere and have anything <laughs> at any at any one time I was also struck listening to all of that by the way in which it does pick up on certain issues which have historically been quite important in thinking about finance in other words the way in which our approach to money can affect our way of being in the world and in time. So thinking about the ways in which as the banking system was emerging, you know, that one of the big issues that arose around the uh, the growing availability of credit and the growing use of credit as a, as a financial instrument was, first of all, whether that challenged established understandings of human beings placed within creation, whether it's breaking the proper place of humanity within creation, but also our place within time, or, or rather our way of being in time, where the idea of making profit through money lending was understood to be in some sense an act of theft of time, that which belong, you know, which which pertain to, to God rather than to human beings. And clearly that that whole debate has, you know, has a, has, a, has a difficult and problematic history. But it seems that actually the kind of things that you're talking about and that experience, Catherine, of, of entering into a different space where there are curtains which close around you in order to help you to imagine another way of being in time, of being in the world, 
it's precisely what is difficult, not just because of technology, but also because of finance, because our financial relations are everywhere and, and they shape how we are in both the urban spaces that we move through and inhabit and indeed the, the, the natural landscapes within which we are. Maybe one thing to pick up there is this question about the openness of the future, the capacity to imagine things otherwise. So in relation to money and finance, we've talked about this quite long-standing idea of debt as a claim on the future, as a, as, as a shutting down of the future, a practical material shutting down of alternative futures. If you are enslaved to debt, then there are certain things that you can do, a much larger range of things that you can't do, and also is a future claim on the natural world. So we require the extraction of further resources and the exploitation of planetary limits in order to meet the claims of money, if you like, the claims of money as debt. But there's also the dimension that brings us back to this question about the visible and the invisible and what you make visible and how you can make these relationships and systems visible. We've also talked about the inability to imagine that things could be otherwise. The inability to imagine selves and societies that are not constrained in these ways by finance. One other thought about the project Earth Tones is that it's addressing both of those in some ways, isn't it? It's making making apparent the material impacts of certain kinds of practices, including practices of creating indebtedness and making demands on natural resources. It's also by reconnecting people with places, people with time in a certain way, inviting the imagination of alternatives. And I'm now realising as I talk that Catherine talking about cutting off or unplugging or detaching from certain everyday assumptions about how things work may be necessary in order to enable imaginings of, of alternative futures. I think what we mean by making connections a lot of the time is kind of providing enough so that as somebody experiencing the work, you can make those connections, that you can then see how that you might be able to kind of feel more deeply connected to the systems that we're presenting, to the ideas that we're, we're trying to kind of explore as provocations, I suppose. You can't just sort of shout at somebody to tell them what they should be feeling. Actually, that idea of invitation to understand. I think that's really fundamental to the whole project, actually. I mean, speaking as a social scientist, one of the things that really excites me about the cultural life and money and finance project and the involvement of the arts and humanities in thinking through money and alternatives in this way is precisely because the methodology you described there I think is is absolutely right. I think there is so much you can do in presenting evidence and data and well-researched arguments around why people should maybe change their bank account, why they should shop in a more ethical or environmentally aware way but so long as that is a kind of one-way experience of let's say me as an economic sociologist imparting my research to someone else whose behavior I would like to nudge it's actually far more powerful to reveal to people through their own engagement with the art as you describe it a kind of experiential shift whereby they suddenly become aware that their engagement with money and finance on a day-to-day -day level in their own lives is just one possible experience. It's just one way 
it might be a very hardened and a very familiar and a kind of normalized way of thinking about money in their daily lives and that finance is something that is a kind of capricious force that will happen to you at different stages of the life course but actually precisely through the kind of work that you're doing at Invisible Flock in that experiential sense the ability to reveal to people the contingent nature of how they understand money and finance really does open up the potential for genuine change you know a kind of revolution in people's minds before we get to what's necessary in 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 the kind of practical world through appreciating that the way in which alternative futures emerge is not always in fact if ever an evidence-based academic-led argument but is actually through the communal experience of realizing that a particular form of practice can be altered and I think the the you know what really excites me about where this project is at the moment and where it's going is the opportunity to kind of further that cause I think and to, to kind of continue that methodology and why the arts and humanities have such a central role to play in this whole process. Just to build on those that point as well I think what's really exciting is the way in which um, we're not just thinking about how to kind of wag our fingers at people tell them what they can't have and you know as Invisible Flock is showing it's not just about analysing what's gone wrong and what needs to stop but it's also providing precisely positive alternatives, showing what happens when we might think about these things in different ways. So it's not just give up a financialized way of being, give up credit cards, give up your mortgage, but it's also look at what happens when you change perspective, you change the way in which you relate to the world, the way in which you understand your own way of being in time and think about what that means. It's empowering, it's enabling, and it's positive. So as we draw this conversation to a close, um, Catherine, we wondered if you wanted to leave us with any particular thoughts or questions that we should take forward into this project on the cultural life of money and finance. I mean, I guess I want just to say thank you, because it's been incredibly insightful for us to look at our practice from this perspective. It's really built and grown thinking that we hadn't quite articulated, I think, actually. It's, it's really pulled together some systems and ideas that we're going to absolutely kind of continue pursuing and, and weaving within our practice. And I hope, actually, that this is maybe just kind of the beginning of conversations and that actually there's scope to continue having them. Uh, so, yes, I just want to say thank you to each of you. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you'd like to find out more about Invisible Flock, you can visit their website at invisibleflock.com and follow them on Twitter at invisibleflock. To learn more about the Cultural Life of Money and Finance project, do please visit our website at culturallifeofmoney.leeds.ac.uk. Follow us on Twitter at Cultural Money and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or other major podcast platforms. We're grateful to the Leeds Arts and Humanities Research Institute 
and to the Leeds Creative Lab Scheme at the Cultural Institute at the University of Leeds for their support for our project. And above all, we'd like to say thanks to you for listening. <laughs>